Welcome to the Plutonomics Podcast with Lori Cammie and Barnaby Levin. The word Plutonomics means the study of wealth. It's our mission to educate, to help clients think about their goals and how they might benefit from working with an advisor to achieve them. But more importantly, it's to make sure our listeners understand both the pros and cons of any issue so they can make informed decisions and increase the odds of finding the right answer for them. You see, it's not who's right or wrong, but knowing there are no disinterested parties or unbiased opinions and that where you sit depends on where you stand. The challenge to making good decisions is to start by questioning one's assumptions and to break free of our prejudices because the truth usually lies somewhere in between. There are always two sides to every issue, both of which have merit. Last week, we spoke about future trends, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed sharing our thoughts, and of course that you found it useful when thinking about your own investments. This week, we're discussing another important topic, inflation versus deflation. So what's the difference? When prices go up, that means things cost more. That's the definition of inflation and means we're getting less for our money. Deflation, on the other hand, means prices are falling, which one would think would be a good thing. When production costs go down, for example, when it's a result, say, of improved technology or lower raw material costs, that savings sometimes is passed on to the consumers, but not always. Consumer prices tend to fall when supply is greater than demand. When people stop buying for some reason, and in order to get them to do so again, companies have to cut prices until they reach a point where the consumer feels he or she is getting a bargain and is compelled to take advantage of it. But that usually isn't good for the company, whose profits are reduced, and it typically happens during times of uncertainty or recession when people are being laid off. And because of this, it isn't good for consumers who are suffering for businesses who are losing money, or for the markets which are going down in anticipation of lower profits ahead. So it's times like this during recessions when a country's central bank will step in and begin printing money to stimulate demand. But because of there's now more of it, each dollar outstanding is diluted and buys less, which ultimately is what happens to every fiat currency that isn't backed by some tangible asset like gold to prevent or discourage it. In other words, Barnaby, what you're saying is that either way, the currency is devalued, whether from inflation or a country's central bank printing more money to stimulate demand in a recession. Yes, I agree with you for the most part, particularly that inflation results from a supply imbalance with demand. But there are exceptions. Even though we haven't seen it for some time, prices can rise in the absence of demand when, for example, a manufacturer with a monopoly power artificially limits supply, like OPEC did with oil in the 70s and 80s, or during times of war when factory output is diverted to make weapons or feed and clothe soldiers. You know, conversely, we've seen that lower prices or costs, as you said, can result from innovation and automation by lowering the cost of production as with cars and computers, or when selling something for the same price, they're able to offer more in the way of features and benefits. That, in a sense, is deflationary. 
In the meantime, however, people expect their salaries and Social Security to rise every year at the same rate or higher than inflation. In fact, they expect it like it's an entitlement. And this is why definitions and the consequences of inflation and deflation are so important to understand. Because we save and invest to have enough money to maintain a certain standard of living, to pay for college, a new home, and at some point retire comfortably. But one of the factors we must consider is what inflation or deflation will do to the value and purchasing power of our money and investments over the course of a lifetime. Again, for more than 70 years, the Consumer Price Index has averaged about 3%. But since 2010, it has remained at under 2%, no matter how much stimulus we've had. We've lived through a decade of low inflation and low interest rates for almost everything, from our auto loans to our mortgages, where we've been able to refinance again and again and lower our monthly payments. There is one notable exception, however, and that's with credit cards, whose rates have remained stubbornly high and impact the poor most of all. You know, perhaps it's the way they're priced. For example, the Fed sets short-term rates, and the markets determine the price and yield of longer-term debt like 10-year treasury bonds on which mortgages are based. They're both based on expectations of inflation. But credit cards, well, their rates are set by banks and to some degree are high because historically a significant number of people defaulted. So the risk of default is a bigger risk, a bigger factor than inflation. Today, that isn't true. Today, delinquencies are at 15-year low, and that hasn't changed what credit card companies charge. This is definitely something we want to explore more in other podcasts. But it is a warning that high rates can be sticky and show up in unexpected places depending on one's stage in life and spending habits. For now, however, our biggest concern is bonds and how with yields so low, investing in them may not provide the preservation of capital or income to cover one's increasing cost of living, which is why we buy bonds in the first place. Central banks say they have this robust arsenal of tools with impressive sounding terms like quantitative easing to deal with inflation whenever it does appear. But the bottom line is they really rely on raising and lowering rates. And until recently, there was a limit to how low they could go, which is zero. But in 2012, Mario Draghi, when he was president of the European Central Bank, he gave his famous will do whatever it takes speech and proved that, I guess, under certain circumstances, investors can be convinced to accept a negative return when they lend someone else money, even though it's their money, and they're the ones taking the risk of getting pennies back on the dollar. Wow, that's a paradox. And yet, when it comes to issuing massive amounts of debt, say in Europe and Japan, where rates are mostly negative, it seems that the belief or bet is that things will get even worse. It's like a race to the bottom to see who can lose less money. And as Barnaby suggested, what's even more amazing is that in 2020, close to $17 trillion worth this negative yielding debt was issued. We got to say that again. That's $17 trillion of negative yielding debt with a T. You know, maybe it's demographics and demand from older investors who want the seemingly safety and security of knowing that debt is backed by their government's full faith and credit and that they're willing to pay them almost any price for peace of mind. 
You know, part of it was, of course, engineered by the world's central banks who, through this quantitative easing, became the most substantial buyers of their own country's newly issued debt. And it was to keep rates low, spur an economic recovery, and to encourage spending. But, you know, when rates do rise, and at some point they will, all those bonds will fall in value. And I just don't think most people who own them actually appreciate this. Either that or they think they'll be smart enough to get out ahead of time, like a game of musical chairs, or that joke about two guys being chased by a bear when it only matters who's slower than the other. Suffice to say, when the time comes, the only ones who will win are governments themselves, because they're the ones getting paid to borrow and then repaying their debts with cheaper dollars instead of the other way around, which it should be. So this leads us to the third reason why we might get higher rates. And it's because at some point, governments will have issued so much debt that buyers will worry about their ability to pay or that they'll be paid back with money that's literally worthless. If that happens, buyers might stage a boycott as foreigners have already done. Last March, for example, when we passed the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, they sold over a trillion dollars of our debt overnight and have been net sellers ever since. So if this continues, given the fact our own Fed's already buying nearly 60% of all newly issued treasuries, we face the risk of a downward spiral or cliff. Because history shows that what happens when a country loses the trust of its people, like it has in Venezuela? It behooves us, therefore, to remember the words of Ernest Hemingway when it comes to bankruptcy or default or whatever they want to call it. How'd I do it, he asked? Gradually, he said. Then suddenly. You know, Barnaby, you may be right. We may be nearing that inflection point with the dollar and with the currencies of other developed nations when they'll all need to keep printing money. And at some point, interest rates and inflation will inevitably rise faster, perhaps, than central banks want. And when that happens for a business... When a business is over-indebted, they simply reach a point where they run out of money and declare bankruptcy. But governments, sovereign nations, t- can't typically do that. So it can lead to that inflationary spiral, which over time has been difficult to control until it's run their course and inflicted great pain on their populations. So what are we to do about it? Because we haven't seen this here in many years. Well, it tells us that more than ever, investors need to balance their portfolios with things that can rise in value, appreciate regardless of where rates go. And that, again, isn't the case, we think, with investing in bonds anymore. But there are alternatives that we'll share with you, our listeners, in coming podcasts. So please stay tuned. In the meantime, feel free to offer any feedback you have on what we said today on how we can improve these discussions. And if you have questions, reach out to either Lori or me. And please join us next week when we'll be discussing global investing. Why or why not? And if so, where? This is Lori Camion Barnaby Levin for the Plutonomics Podcast signing off. LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth are a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, and advisory services through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. 
Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and any investment opportunity referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable, and any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Neither LK Wealth and Asset Management, LCK Wealth, or Hightower shall in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or complete of the data for statements or errors contained in or emissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced and such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth and they do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.